Uh, good morning. We get to start a new book this morning. Second Peter, continuing on from First Peter. Um, and we're only going to do the first two verses, although depending on your translation, we uh, it was actually split up a little differently, but we will go with verses one and two this morning. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, I am so sorely tempted to make a uh, comment about uh, how the verse is broken up, but I'll just let it go. <laughs> just to needle Jim a little bit, you know, not, not that it really matters. Um, so let's, uh, let's open a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, um, as, uh, as John said, we, you know, we, we put our hope in you. And, or as Kyle said, we put our hope in you, and, and um, Lord, that is just such great news that, that we cannot be shaken. Thank you for being our, our stone, for being the rock of our salvation, and for being so sure. Um, and Lord, as we now embark on this new book of the Bible, uh, this, this next um, letter from uh, Peter, Lord, we pray that uh, we would learn the message that, that Peter has for us and that you'd sink it into our heart. Father, we want to pray for Joel and Ashley as they're in uh, the Czech Republic and pray that uh, they're uh, ministering in the camp that they're doing there for youth is, is going well. We pray that uh, the gospel is being clearer and uh, that children's hearts and minds are being engaged with the truth. And we pray for the children's parents, too, that there be the uh, connections being made there um, because we want to see your church grow across the globe. And so, Lord, um, to that end, would you help us uh, this morning? by showing us your word, helping us to understand and to believe it, putting our trust in it. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in 1942, in November of 1942, British and American forces successfully conducted an invasion of North Africa. Um, they put Rommel on his heels, sent him running. Now, at the same time, the Soviet Union wanted uh, the U.S. and Great Britain to open a second front on Europe to take some of the German pressure off of them. Their troops were, were fighting. And that sounded pretty reasonable. Churchill said that he wanted to deliver a punch to the un soft underbelly of the Axis. And so uh, Churchill and Roosevelt agreed there would be an invasion uh, in Europe next. The logical place to invade was Sicily. That, that seemed like the next logical place to go. Um, however, some classified documents fell into the hands of the Germans, and these documents detailed the invasion not of Sicily, but of Sardinia and Greece. And so what the, the uh, Axis forces did is they began to build up their troops there. Uh, Mussolini was convinced that it was coming to Sicily, but Hitler disagreed, and so they built up the, uh, the, uh, their troops in Greece waiting for that, that invasion. The real story here, though, is how those classified documents got to the Germans, and it comes down to one man named Bill Martin. Um, Bill Martin was born in 1907 in Cardiff, Wales. 
Uh, by World War II, he had joined the Royal Marines, and he was uh, promoted. He was a captain and acting major. He was thought of to be a clever and even a brilliant officer and uh, very industrious. Um, his fiancée, Pam, had written to him a number of times complaining about the frequent trips that he had to take. She really missed him when he was gone. And that was because he was a trusted courier. Um, they, they wanted to get the battle plans for the invasion of Greece to the commander in North Africa. And so the chief of combined operations, Lord Mountbatten, trusted one man with it, Bill Martin. And so he, he couldn't trust the home office. They didn't want these plans getting out, so they put them in a satchel, and they were given to uh, Martin. The satchel was so important, it was chained to him. Kind of like you remember seeing it where they put a handcuff on. They, they chained it to him, and he set off for North Africa. Um, unfortunately, he never made it. Uh, his body washed up on a shore in Spain. A Spanish fishermen found him and turned him over to the Nazis. A few weeks later, that briefcase was returned to the British attache uh, with the assurance everything is still there. Uh, when the papers were examined, though, British intelligence confirmed that they had been opened. And British intelligence couldn't have been happier. This was exactly what they wanted to happen. You see, the real plan was to invade Sicily, but they wanted to send a misdirection to the Nazis. And so this, this acting major, Bill Martin, had never existed. He wasn't a real person. They had made up the entire story. They, they invented a fiance named Pam. They filled his briefcase not only with fake plans for the invasion of Greece, but also with personal effects. His pockets were filled with things like cigarettes and lighter uh, and matches and uh, keys. And the body, unfortunately, was a man who had died uh, months before this in a warehouse in London from rat poison. And the, the, they're not sure if he died from self-inflicted wound or if he ate it just because he was poor and hungry and ate whatever food was there. Um, his name was Glendor Williams, and he was a Welsh man who had passed away, who had just buried his parents a couple of months before that, and he passed away. And so they got his body from the morgue, and he became Major Martin. And so when they got the, the documents, they prepared, like I said, Mussolini thought they're coming for Sicily. Hitler disagreed and built up the uh, forces in, in Greece. The invasion of Sicily went smoothly. It was really a successful operation. And the Germans were so convinced by what they had in this intelligence that they kept additional forces in Greece for months afterward. Hitler was convinced that the invasion of Sicily was a precursor to the actual invasion which was coming in Greece. They wanted to see or they believed what they saw. They saw a, 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 a Royal Marine Major, and they didn't look any further because he seemed to be what he seemed to be, and so they never questioned it. So now, when we come to Peter, what Peter's telling us here is he says, he's telling us what his true objective is in this letter. His true objective in this letter of Second Peter is that we grow in grace. He blesses us with that in verse 2. He tells us about the promise of it in verse 3. He tells us about the fruitfulness of it in verse 8. He says, though that, uh, he says that through it we can escape the defilements of the world in chapter 2, verse 20. And in the end, um, in chapter 3, verse 18, he commends us to grow in grace. That is his purpose. But there are threats to that growth in grace. 
And, and so what he tells us is he says that there are dangers to our growth and grace. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They sneak in as faithful brothers, but they're false teachers. So this idea, this deception that we pulled on the Nazis, this Trojan horse is an ancient tactic. It's been used a number of times. So think of the Garden of Eden. Satan came in dressed as a serpent, and he spoke to Eve, and he gave her just this little bit of wrong information. The, the term Trojan horse comes from Greek mythology. It happened a long time ago. It came in as this gift of a horse, and it was filled with bad guys. So this is what Peter is warning us about, is he wants us to grow in grace. And that's what the beginning and the end of the letter are going to discuss. But in the middle, he talks about the threat to our grace, uh, to our growth in grace. Um, so this is, like I said, nothing new. And, um, and it really does, this morning what I want to introduce us to is that promise of the growth and grace, just kind of the beginning of that. So we'll take a look at just a few verses, but they feel like throwaway because they're introduction to a letter. And usually you kind of read through them real quick and where do we get to the good part? But there's actually a really good part right here, right in front of us. So let's, let's slow down and take a look. In, in verse 1, it says, if you're looking at the ESV, it says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So there, the, the problem here is a, is a textual issue. Uh, most of the Greek, uh, the Greek test, let me try that again. Most of the Greek manuscripts of Second Peter have the word Simon, the one we're familiar with. There's one ancient one that is Simeon. And so when you have a disagreement with texts, the, the generally accepted approach is go with the harder one. So it's harder to, to justify Simeon, so that was probably it. It seems like it might have been easier for the scribes to just automatically write Simon because that's the name they're used to. You know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. Simeon is just a very literal transliteration of the Hebrew name. And so one theory is, well, of course Peter would write that because that was the name he grew up with. Simon is a Greek version of it, and, and so maybe that's it. Like I said, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. That name is not what the most important part is. What he says next is really important. He says, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So an apostle, remember I said before, an apostle is it, it, basically what it means is somebody who is sent. So in the New Testament, there are other apostles. There are uh, um, Barnabas is called an apostle in the book of Acts. But when we talk about the 12 apostles, the ones that Jesus sent, that's something special. That is a unique group of apostles. And that's what Peter is referring to. So the, the apostles were um, the leaders of the nascent church. They had spent time with Jesus. They had walked with him. They had heard him. So before the writing of the New Testament, they were the authority on what Jesus said and taught. So they had a special role within the church, this apostle. Um, as a matter of fact, in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles had this special authority, this special role. But did you notice Peter didn't put that first? He says that second. And in Greek, often when you want the primary thing, you move that to the front. So he is an apostle. He is not just a, a missionary. He is one of the twelve. But the first thing, the most important thing in his mind is he's a servant. And the word there in Greek is doulos. It's, it, we translate it in, in the ESV as servant. There's a footnote that says go look at the introduction and it explains what that is. 
Dulos meant slave, basically. So when Peter says he is a slave of Jesus Christ, he is not claiming this high social standing. One of the dictionaries I have talks about the word doulos, and they said this. In ancient Greece, personal freedom was a prized possession. The slave, on the other hand, belonged not to himself, but to someone else. Because slavery involved the abrogation of one's own autonomy and the subordination of one's will to another, Greeks typically felt contempt for the position of a slave. To be sure, slaves could take part in domestic worship and in many cases were treated humanely, yet on a whole, the life of the slave was one of unrelented, uh, uh, yeah, unreviled, compulsory, uh, unrelieved, I'm sorry, unrelieved compulsory labor and service in the household and public works. So what Peter is saying when he says a servant, a slave, is he's saying the, the fruits of my own labor I am not accruing to myself. The fruits of my labor go to another. What he's saying is, I do not have the personal autonomy and freedom to go and do what I want whenever I want. I have a boss who's telling me when and where. I don't have the freedom to go do those things. And what Peter is telling us by putting that word first is this is the best news. This is the greatest thing. What Peter is doing is he's saying, I'm adopting the position of what is culturally the lowest of the low. I am taking the position of servant because that's great news. And he learned this from somebody very special, somebody he spent a lot of time with. He learned it from Jesus. In Luke 22, Jesus told him, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the, least, or the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Peter is the one who, when Jesus, after the, the Last Supper, took a towel, wrapped it around himself, and washed his feet, said, no, Lord, not my, don't wash my feet. And when Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me, this is wash all of me. Wash everything. I want all of you. Peter learned the lesson from his master. He is an apostle, and he could call on his authority and say all sorts of magnificent things, but instead he starts with, I am your servant. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. That seems pedantic. It seems like, oh, okay, whatever, but it, it means something because of where he goes with it. What the next sentence he says is, he goes on and he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I'm starting, I'm one of you guys. I am a servant. Yes, I have an apostleship. I have a, a calling on, on my life from God, but I'm like you. And then look at where he goes. To those who have obtained a like faith with ours. We're all in this together, you guys. He's serving in the way that Jesus called him to serve, which is don't be the first, be the last. Don't be the one that, who has people come in and adore him. Serve the church. So who has Peter written this letter to? Well, what he says at the end of the letter in chapter 3, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up. I'm, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So who he's writing 2 Peter to? Pretty much who he was writing 1 Peter to. Those, those churches in the dispersion, at least a portion of them, maybe all of them. But he's writing a second letter. But listen, that's not all. Listen who else he's writing him to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. 
He's writing to us. He's writing to us as well. So it's not just those churches. And so when he says that, that we have obtained a faith of equal standing, the word that he uses for obtained is, is um, rare. It's only used a, a couple of times in the Bible. As a matter of fact, real quick, one of the complaints about Peter writing this letter, one of the reasons people think he didn't write it is because the Greek is so different from 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, it's pretty polished, it's pretty good. In 2 Peter, it feels like somebody is trying to force good Greek. And, and the other thing is, there's a lot of words, they're called hapax legomenon. There's your $9 seminary educated word of the day. What that means is it's a word that only appears once. And in some of the words that only appear once in the New Testament, some of them don't even appear in, in regular Greek. So it's like Peter made them up. Um, but I think it's fair to say Peter did write this. And, and it may be Peter himself writing this because one of the theories was it's like somebody who knew Greek, who got better at it and was trying to be really good at it, but didn't quite make it. <laughs> it sounds to me like Peter. You know, I'm trying here. Let me, let me try. But he uses these words that come up very seldomly. And this is one of them, this, this obtained. The other two places or three places that it appears in the New Testament has to do with drawing lots, casting lots. Now, think of rolling dice, right? If you play D&D, you roll a 20-sided die, right? You know, that, that's casting lots. So you could think, well, we have obtained our faith just by random chance, right? That's not what casting lots is when we talk about it in a biblical sense. What casting lots is, think of the, the high priest. He had the breastplate on, and in the breastplate was something called the Urim and the Thummim. We have no idea what they were, but there's a number of places that says, if this, then give umum, and if that, give thumen. So it was a, as a way of drawing lots, and God would communicate through that. He would, he would not let something happen randomly. Those lots would come up on purpose. He would, he would be the one in control of it. Also, Acts chapter 1, the very end of the chapter, there's this kind of off story where Peter stands up amongst the brothers and says, hey, you know what? Judas is gone. we got to replace him. And he quotes some scripture to say, we have to replace Judas. All right, well, who should, we, who should we take? And they bring up two people, and they cast lots. And the sense there is not, well, you just got lucky. <laughs> you know, you, you hit the apostle lottery, buddy. It's not that. It's, God, we trust that you have communicated to, to us through lots. So we have obtained a, a like faith as his. In other words, it is something that God has brought about in the common order of things. He, he's brought it to us. We have obtained it. It, it is a gift that's given to us. We've obtained a faith, and he says that it is of equal standing with ours. Now think about that for a second. Who, remember who's writing this. This is the apostle Peter. Peter is the one who is in a boat. He's a sailor. He's in a boat. He's terrified because there's a storm on the sea, and they see Jesus walk past the boat on the water in a storm. And Peter is the one that says, if it's you, Lord, call me out and I'll walk. And Peter walked on the water until he got a hold of the waves and then began to sink. But he walked, I've never even begun to walk on water. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water for at least a few steps. That's faith. Peter is the one who walked into the temple after Pentecost. He goes into the temple and he sees a man who is lame from birth, a man who has never stood up. And he says, I don't have gold or silver to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the man didn't just stagger to his feet, he leapt. Peter did that. Peter said he believed Jesus Christ enough to say that. Peter is the one who looked at Ananias and Sapphira. 
and said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And they fell down dead at his feet. And that terrified people. Peter is the one who would go to Joppa and be told about this young disciple named Tabitha. And he'd go in and he'd, he'd hold her hand and say, Tabitha, rise. And she rose from the dead. And now Peter is looking at us and he's saying, you have a faith of an equal, equal standing as ours. I have never raised anybody from the dead. I have never healed somebody who was born lame, who had never walked before. I haven't done those things. So how can Peter look at me and say, you have a faith that's of equal standing as mine? Because when, people, when, when Peter's talking about the, the standing of our faith, the worth of our faith, it's not the intensity of it. It is the object of it. It is the object of our faith. So the Lord says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard, you'll say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. A tiny little sliver of faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It is the object of it. Looking forward, looking outward. Saving faith is what's called ad extra. It's outward focused. I'm going to stop looking inward at myself. I'm going to start looking at Jesus Christ because he's sufficient. He's the one that's worthy of it. So our, our saving faith is ad extra. As at, at times, it is, it is super strong. We just feel the presence of God with us. At times, it is threadbare. We're just barely hanging on. I can hardly confess my faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? We're equally saved. That's what Peter means when he says, you have obtained a faith of equal worth as ours. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And the verse itself testifies that because he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal value as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, by or through, this faith comes because of the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus' righteousness is transferred to you. It's given to you. That's what your faith is. It's, Lord, when I go to heaven, I am not trusting in myself. I heard a great sermon illustration from Alistair Begg, and I'm going to repeat it because it was so good. He was talking about this very issue. It's not about you. He said, if you, if you get to heaven and you're asked, why should you be here? Your answer had always better be in the third person. Because he, not because of me. I did this. No, be in the third person. And then he talked about the thief on the cross. He said, here's the perfect illustration of it, the thief on the cross. He gets to heaven and the angel says, why are you here? He goes, I don't know. So the angel begins to question him. Okay, so, so you've, you have a full grasp then of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the thief goes, never heard of it. Don't know what you're talking about. Well, surely, let's move to scripture. Surely you understand the, the inerrancy and the perspicuity of, of the scriptures and how they're the very word of God, right? And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. The angel says, then why should you be here? And he goes, all I know is the guy on the middle cross said I should be. And I thought that was the brilliant answer. That's where your faith has got to be. The guy on the middle cross said so. That's the only reason I'm here. That's why your faith can be threadbare or rich as an oak tree. And you're still saved because it's depending on him, not on you. But he says that it is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not just any Jesus. It's not just any person with the name Jesus tacked on. 
just to be clear, the Jesus that we're talking about, the righteousness we get, he is not Satan's spiritual brother. He is not the first created being. He is not an excellent moral teacher. He is not a misunderstood first century rabbi. The one that we trust, the righteousness that we get is from our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the Jesus that we're trusting in. That's why your faith can be threadbare and you can be secure because this is God who saved you. You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. That's how you have obtained that. So when we go to heaven, when we get to the gates of heaven and we're questioned, why should you be here? I totally agree with Alistair Begg. The answer is in the third person because I'm with him. That's the only reason. Now, we don't want you to have threadbare faith. It, you won't lose your salvation, but that's not a good place to be. So Peter goes to the next thing that he says, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of, our, of God and of our... Um, I'm sorry, let me say that again. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So whereas the... Thief on the cross has never benefited from the Sunday school lessons of Dan Stromberg. He, he has never had access to the rich resources that may appear on the Trinity Reads table. He, he's never had the opportunity to hang out in fellowship with you wonderful people and hear about what God's doing in your life. He was still saved. But you have access to those things. If you think about the embarrassment of riches that the Western church has, it is staggering. Go to um, BibleGateway.com and try to look up a verse of the Bible in a different version than the NIV, which is, I think, the default one. The list for English Bibles is huge. It, and then go look at some of the other languages, and there's like just a handful for each one. The, the riches of Bible that we have is an embarrassment to the American church. We have so many translations, so many versions. There are so many commentaries written in it. We are rich with these theo this, this biblical theology, and you have access to that. It's there because Peter wants grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And how is it multiplied to you? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus. The, the amount of resources available to you are gigantic. Don't neglect them. Don't, don't look at the, 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 the things that God has given us and say, uh, I can do without. I'm saved even if my faith is tiny. If somebody sent you a check for 45, I don't know, let's make it big. If somebody sent you a check for $450,000, would you leave it on the, on the kitchen counter, bury it underneath a stack of junk mail that piles up? Would you neglect that? That money is going to be absolutely useless to you in 10,000 years. But a growing and a nurturing faith in Jesus Christ will far exceed the value of that check. You wouldn't neglect that. Why would you neglect what you have? That's why we've been pushing, read through the Bible in a year. Find a version you like. There's some good and some not so good, but find a version that works for you. Find a reading plan that works for you and invest time in it. Read through the Bible in a year. And don't look for you. Don't look for helpful hints on how to be a better person. Look for who God is as you're reading through it. If you need help, guess what? There's tons of commentaries and, and resources and devotionals. We got a couple of devotionals on the Trinity Reads table that will help you analyze and think through some of these scriptures. 
you have this stuff available. The $450,000 check is going to look like garbage compared to this stuff. You have a church family who does not want you to have threadbare faith. All of us together want to help each other to grow and to increase. And Peter wants us to grow in grace. And so he wants grace and peace to be multiplied to us. Exponential growth in grace and peace. Not so that you're more saved or more secure in the future, but so that you might grow in that grace. You might have more of who Jesus Christ is. The author to Hebrews gives us a warning about neglecting things. In, in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the revelation to Moses on the mountain, the, the message declared to angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared by, uh, at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard, while God also, also bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What a sobering warning. Don't say, well, I have enough faith to be saved and I don't care anymore. If that's true, you probably don't have saving faith and you should really care. <laughs> that's, that's ignoring that $450,000 check and just going, ah, it's no big deal. So what? The, the point is, we grow in the grace of God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and our Lord. He's going to repeat that theme three or four more times throughout this book. It's going to come up repeatedly. The knowledge of the Lord has great power for us. So we're not saved by passing a theology test. You grow in grace not by knowing all the, the technical details. Um, you don't have to have exact definitions of divine anthropopathism or complete understandings of the details of the hypostatic union or the perichoresis of the Trinity. Those, there's nothing wrong with studying and knowing those things. Those are great, wonderful doctrines to blow your mind. But you can't just go, well, I don't care. We need to know who God is. We need to study, to the degree that the Lord has given us, the knowledge of the Lord. So there's a book on the Trinity table, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's short little chapters will blow your mind because it's about God. So know, grow in your knowledge of God and you'll grow in grace and in truth. Neglect them and your faith is in danger. So that's, that's the point. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. But you don't get that knowledge by sitting back and waiting for it to transmit into your brain. He's given us means. It's, it's something that's called immediate and immediate. When we think of the word immediate, we think it means right now, as soon as possible. What it really means, the root of the word is, is, is without a medium, without being transmitted. So our faith, which is a gift, it was given to us, is immediate. It didn't have a, a, a pathway to get to us. God gave us faith so that when we heard the gospel, we believed. So that's an immediate thing. He has given us, after we're saved, immediate means to grow in that. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us each other. And so we have to engage those immediate means to grow in grace. You have to pick up a book. You have to listen to a podcast from a good, solid Bible teacher. Um, or if you're really old school, you could turn on the radio and listen to them. 
Um, I recommend great caution with that. I have heard some really horrific things on Christian radio at times, but the resources are available to you. And so as we go through the rest of the book of 1 Peter, we're going to present resources. Peter is going to give us resources. The first chapter is largely about that idea of growing in grace. The second chapter is largely about that threat, about a major Martin trying to sneak in here with false information. And then chapter three, he returns again to that theme of growing in grace. So this is the book of 2 Peter. One of the reasons I think that Peter wrote both, even if the styles are so significantly different, is the outline is so close. Do you remember 1 Peter? Please say yes. <laughs> First Peter, what was that about? That was about having hope. Even though we're in the dispersion, even though we're cast out amongst the nations, how do you have hope? And so you think the whole thing is going to be about hope. And what is most of the book about? Suffering, opposition, persecution, ridicule. Because he wants our hope to be secure, he has to talk about the threats to it. Same exact thing in Second Peter. I want you to grow in grace. Here's a huge threat to your growth in grace. Now, grow in grace. It just feels so Peterine, Peterish, Peter-like, Simeon-ish. I don't know what the word is. It sounds like St. Peter to me. So that's, that's what we're going to go with. That's just what we're going to stick with. So with that introduction to growing in grace, let's close in prayer. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Man, I can just sit and meditate on that phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for all of us engaged in Trinity, all of us who are going to hear this message, Lord, would you stir in us a desire to unpack that phrase, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to understand, to know more of you, to see more of you so that we might grow in your grace. And Lord, I pray for us as a group of believers, as a dedicated group of believers, Lord, that we would be encouraging each other in that as well. As Peter is demonstrating, he's walking out for us, what does it mean? What, what does it mean to look like growing in grace? Humility. God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. And so we may we see each other in that light. How can we help each other to grow in those things, to know you better? And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish great things in and through our body. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.